0: Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you're here. Uh, by the time this sermon is done, you may not be glad you were here, but no, we'll get into that in just a moment. Unless you've been, uh, you know, living with your head in the sand uh, this last week or two, you have heard of COVID-19, right? The coronavirus from China that's coming to a city near you, um, uh, viruses are, as you know, microscopic parasites that need a, a host body to, to live in. And when they get inside yours, um, they'll latch on to your cells and they actually use the machinery of your own cells uh, to do massive replications of themselves until they take over uh, the body. Coronaviruses are part of the overall general family of viruses, Um, but they're named coronavirus because of the way they look, these little crown-like appendages that surround cells, uh, uh, coronaviruses. And um, as you are aware, they are quickly becoming, the little critters there are quickly becoming disruptors of our world. Isn't amazing? Something so microscopic can wreck such havoc economically and um, socially in our world. Uh, But according to the World Health Organization, um, it's a major threat. Um, It is coming, it says, to a city near you. uh, What is it? Something like 85,000 people have been affected. Mortality rate is only 2-3%, although the first person in America died uh, this weekend uh, in Washington State. Now, put that in perspective, 18,000 people have died in the United States this year so far, this winter, because of other flus. Um, but uh, it is a major disruptor that, uh, that is happening. Sin, like a virus, enters our bodies. <laughs> sin is like a virus. We become a, a host to sin. But unlike the coronavirus, uh, sin affects every person born into the world. Everyone. And unlike COVID-19, its uh, mortality rate is very impressive. 100%. One out of every one person infected by the virus of sin dies. Now, we've been studying the book of Romans. If you're a guest with us this morning, we typically take a book of the Bible, we work our way through it, and the book of Romans is where we have landed here at Fellowship Bible Church. And over the last couple of months, uh, we've looked at the first three chapters. In the first three chapters, Paul is building his argument about the pervasive sinfulness of mankind. Not a lot of warm fuzzies uh, when he talk about the pervasive sin of mankind, but he's mentioned the the moral person who says, well, I'm I'm a moral person. That doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. Or the religious person. He's also mentioned the religious person has no leg to stand on. Sin is pervasive. It's infected you too. And with it is the certainty of death. Um, And it brings us to chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 9 this morning. So take your Bibles, turn to me verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul brings this, this cogent argument about um, the condition of mankind to a climax, and he says this in verse 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, it's extremely important that we understand what Paul is saying in this verse and in the next 11 verses as he builds his argument to this climax. Without a thorough understanding of this verse and the following verses, we really won't understand much of the rest of the book of of Romans. There's this logical flow to his argument, and we've got to understand what Paul is saying. Verse 9 says, I'm I'm leveling this charge. We have already charged that Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, it's kind of like a courtroom scene. This is like legal language. So verse 9, there is the charge that's mentioned. Everybody, Jews, Greeks, all humanity comes under sin. And then starting at verse 11 through verse 18, he'll offer a 14-count indictment. Uh, Here's what we're being indicted against. 14 counts. And then he concludes in verse 19 and 20 with the verdict that God is going to render, um, this legal argument. So verse 9 is the charge, and the charge is very simply this. All men are under sin. Now he's saying more than the fact that we do things that don't measure up to God's standard. I mean, all, all of us this week, in some form or fashion, a word that was said, a thought that was thought an action, a deed that was done or undone. Something this past week didn't measure up to God's standard. That's called sin. The word literally means you missed the mark of God's standard. So we've all come here less than perfect today, but that's not what he's emphasizing necessarily. He's saying here this charge against us is not that we sin it's an indictment that we are under sin. That little phrase, under sin, packs a, a powerful punch. It is saying that we have come under a dominion, a guilt, a, um, an enslavement, a power called sin. Like when a, you talk about people uh, have come under the evil regime of some dictator, they're, they're um, oppressed, they're, they're enslaved, we have come, Paul says, under the dominion, the power, the guilt, the enslavement of sin. And it's universal. We charge that all people, Jews and Greeks alike. Now, theologians call this the depravity of man. Kind of nice little ring to it, doesn't it? This is a warm, fuzzy sermon. The depravity of man. The total corruption of Man. And to understand it, we have to go back and understand a little bit about how sin first came into the world back in the book of Genesis. Um, The question often is asked, so how far, when, when, when Adam and Eve took of that fruit, rebelled against God, did what God told them not to do, and they took of the fruit and they ate, they sinned, how far did that sin take them? How far did they, theologians call it, the fall? How far did they fall? Well... Some people, liberal theologians, would say, well, they really didn't fall. They actually improved themselves. They actually became enlightened. They, they saw reality as it really was. Other people would say, no, 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 no. sin was bad, and they, they fell like off a cliff, but as they're falling, they, they hung on to, to like a tree branch sticking out, like religion or something. They hung on to it. And if they just work themselves a little harder, they can climb back up to God. The Bible teaches that when men fell into sin, he fell headlong into the abyss of, of darkness and death. It was complete, it was total, and there was no way out. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of that, tree of that fruit he said you will surely die it was a promise of God you will surely die, now they took of that fruit they ate of it, they didn't drop over physically dead at that moment death means to be separated, separated from God, separated from his life the spiritual life of God into spiritual death into spiritual darkness, separation amongst themselves relational death psychological death Death at all levels. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve came under the dominating power and enslavement to sin. That's called, by the way, original sin. You've heard that phrase. That was the original sin. But ever since then, everybody born after Adam and Eve is born under sin. Like begets like and so we will read a passage like Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 then the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart every intent the thought behind the thought was only evil continuously or the prophet jeremiah put it this way the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it it's a depravity of man now, that doctrine of depravity does not, doesn't involve... It's not man's estimation of himself. It's not man's estimation of man. This is God's estimation. This is the condition that God says mankind is in. The creature is measured by the standard of the creator and found wanting. The heart of man was changed from the innocence Before sin and the fall, to the corruption and depravity after. And that means that all that comes from man, the essence of his nature, everybody born into this world since Adam and Eve, the essence of their nature is corrupted by sin. Man can do nothing but sin. It's not that man sins and therefore is labeled a sinner. He's a sinner by nature and therefore he sins. Now, the Bible speaks elsewhere of this, like as an example, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, as spiritual death. It says that um, we were all um, in our transgressions and sins spiritually dead. Um, Man is spiritually separated, spiritually corrupted, and depraved. Now, caution. That doesn't mean that man is as bad as, as you could be. It doesn't mean that man is bad off all equally. That's the charge. All are under sin, under the dominion, the power, the enslavement, everybody born under the enslavement of sin. Now, here's the fourteen count indictment. It begins in verse 10 with a, with a general statement of the condition of man. Look at verse 10. As it is written, it's almost like Paul saying, look, don't blame me for this. <laughs> I, I would like to say that too. Don't blame me for these statements. God says this, as it is written, and then he says, there is none righteous, not even one. All-inclusive statements. There's none who does right, who measures up to the rightness of God. Not one in the world. From God's vantage point, no one, no one is righteous in his eyes. And then verse 11 and 12, he begins to unpack this further. He talks about man's character. Verse 11 has two very damaging indictments against mankind. Verse 11, there is none who understands there is none who seeks for God. None who understands. Well, what is Paul saying? He's saying that everybody born into this world is born um, um, with the inability to grasp the spiritual things of God. Back in Romans chapter one, Paul said that God has created this world and you can tell God's invisible attributes, his divine attributes, character, his divine nature, his divine power by the things he created. It is clearly seen and can be understood by the things that have been created. The problem is fallen man, man in his sinfulness, suppresses that truth. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. He suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness and exchanges all that glory of God for, hey, it's all about me, the glory of man. Paul said in chapter 1 that he exchanges the truth of God For the lie. That's what mankind does. They're born this way. Fallen mankind suppresses the truth about God and has no spiritual understanding. Uh, Verse like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says it's something very similar. Natural man, that's the man in his natural state of sinfulness, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For it's foolishness. To him, And then it says, and he cannot understand. It's not that he's unwilling to or, or may not understand it. He cannot understand it because they're spiritually appraised. And in the fallenness of his depravity, mankind, everybody born in this world, Jew, Greek, we all maintain. Paul says all are under sin. None righteous, no, not one, everyone cannot grasp spiritual things about God. The second indictment there and he says and there's no one who seeks for God. None seek after God. Now, you know it seems like we're stretching a little bit here because certainly we see people seemingly pursuing God but make no mistake the scriptures are saying from God's perspective People don't seek after him. Now, mankind may seek for the benefits of God, joy and peace, um, wholeness, happiness, the benefits of God, but no one is seeking for God himself. It's foolishness to him. People seek for the benefits, but not the giver of those benefits. Remember the Garden of Eden back there again in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve committed the sin? God comes into the garden and Adam says, Here I am, God. Over here, hey, we've done some things that, you know, let's talk about it, God. No, that's not what happened, right? They're hiding from God because that's what sin does. It pushes away from God. God seeks us. Adam, where are you? Sin pushes us away from God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, the pagan trembles at the rustling of a leaf. Why did he say that? It was his own personal testimony. He was a priest. He was uh, doing religious things in his religious order. And yet deep down inside, he knew he was not right with God. And God (laughs) was out to get him in judgment and the pagan will tremble at the rustling of a leaf. Men hide from God. That's the natural bent of being under sin. Verse 12, he continues, makes three more um, damaging statements. Verse 12 says, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's not even one who does good, not one. All have turned aside. It's a Greek verb that's the word eklino it's where we get it's a form of our english word incline to incline so i i'm inclined to agree with you i'm i tend to i'm leaning towards agreeing with you i'm bent that way eklino this word is to lean opposite to lean away inclined away from all have inclined themselves away from god that's what sinful man does All have turned aside. It says, together they've become useless. It's a word that was used of of spoiled fruit or something that um, is broken, something that is damaged. All have become useless, created in the image of God to glorify him. Sin enters. We come under the dominating power of sin. All mankind born into the world. And now we become useless for the very thing for which we've been created. And thirdly, it says, there's none who does good, not even one. <laughs> okay, now wait a minute. Stepping over the line a little bit, isn't it? Because surely we know people. There's good people in the world. There's still people who help little ladies across the street. There's still people who give uh, bunches of wealth to uh, philanthropic purposes that uh, help alleviate suffering in the world. There's good people that do good things. There's good parents that try hard to be good parents. There's good citizens that try to do the good things as a citizen. Why is Paul saying there is none who does good, not even one? Well, because when we define goodness, we're talking about relative goodness, how man views themselves in relation to other men. But measured against the standard of God, against God's requirement of what really defines goodness, there is no one good. There's not even one. Remember the story, that, the account that Jesus had um, in the Gospels when this rich young ruler comes up to him? Very good person. uh, Had done probably most things right in his life. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. What Jesus is saying, in the ultimate, absolute sense of goodness, there is no one good but God. We can do good things. Relative goodness. Depravity of man does not mean the total absence of relative goodness. See, we're created in the image of God. But it does mean mankind is devoid of absolute goodness. He continues in verse 13 and talks about man's conduct now. Their their words, verse 13, their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. A general statement of the fallenness, the sinfulness, the death of mankind. Their words, their actions, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. The summary statement now comes the final indictment, verse 18. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a figure of speech, before their eyes, meaning God is nowhere to be found and the decisions of their life, and their pursuits. In fact, God has maybe viewed nothing more as an obstacle, if viewed at all. He's persona non grata. He's a non-entity. God doesn't factor in. He's excluded from man's life. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In fact, Paul will say elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, man is hostile to God. Chapter eight, verse seven and eight, "The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not that man doesn't want to. It, he cannot please God. What an indictment against mankind. There is none righteous, not one. No one does good. Humanity has been totally infected with the virus of sin so completely. He stands before a holy God as a depraved, corrupted sinner. The extent of sin is total. It is complete. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everybody born in this world is as is as bad as they possibly could be. There's good people in the world, relatively speaking. But everybody born in this world is certainly as bad off as they could be. Let me illustrate it. Imagine that you're in a in a little boat out in the middle of some ocean. The wind is kicking up, the, the waves are starting to roll in. You're in that boat bouncing around and and you and you're a good person. I mean, you've tried to live a a decent life you've tried to obey the 10 commandments you haven't hurt anybody you haven't done anything dishonest you you've been you know a good business person a good citizen uh, you've you've you you're just generally a good person but sitting next to you is a convicted rapist over there on the other side near that boat is a mass murderer sitting next to him is a person who for decades has been trafficking in Little children in sex trafficking. There you are all together in the boat. Now imagine that boat out in the middle of the ocean with the waves starting to pick up and roll. Spring's a leak and it's a gusher. And all of you, good and bad, are all bailing water out as furiously as you can because this baby is going down and it's going down quickly. Now the point of the illustration is that not everybody in that boat is equally bad. But everybody is equally bad off. And so it is with mankind. We are not all equally bad. But we are all, as mankind, under sin, none righteous, no not one, equally bad off. We're under the power, the condemnation, the enslavement of sin Every person born in this world. And that means you and me. We were born with a nature of sin. Totally corrupted and depraved. You want an explanation for the ills and woes and the evils of our world today? There it is. Throughout history, there it is. Injustices, man doing injustices against man, there it is. Wars, The destruction of humanity, there it is. And we look no farther than within the heart of every human being born in this world. That's the indictment, the charge, and the indictments against mankind that are leveled by God Himself. It is written. And so, what's the verdict? The charges have been made, the indictments pronounced. What's the verdict? Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, and the law is God's measuring rod, we know that whatever God's standard is, it speaks to those who are under that standard, we created in the image of God, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The conclusion and the verdict is that every mouth is stopped and the whole world now is accountable before God and will rightly be judged for eternity. It, it implies I think a little bit of that mankind almost might uh, attempt a little defense for themselves. You know their mouth might be open for a moment but, but but God, you know good night. I've been a I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. I mean, I wanted to be a pastor when I was 5 years old. I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, I, I, I'm a good person. Or you might say, look, I, I have given a, a large chunk of my wealth for benevolent causes. Some of you might say, look, I, I've, <laughs> I have volunteered in the nursery for the last five decades. That got come on, God. And every mouth is stopped. Every attempt to say, but I, 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 I stopped. It's like the little boy who, who's gotten caught eating cookies out of the cookie jar when he was supposed to. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And there, it's got crumbles all over his face. Of course he did it. It's like the football player angrily decrying the fact that he got flagged on a penalty. But when you look at the replay, there it is. It's obvious. It didn't lie. He's caught. Every mouth is closed, is silence, and all the world becomes accountable before a holy God because there is none righteous in and of themselves, no good, not one. It's almost as if Paul could say at this point, ask the question, would God be fair to cast everybody who's ever been born in this world after Adam and Eve, including Adam and Eve, (laughs) To cast everybody into hell for all of eternity and the answer without hesitation should be absolutely yes. We stand with our mouths shut before a holy God who's measured us against the standard of his righteousness and holiness and we are found wanting. There is no one who does good. Now let me repeat what I said earlier. We've got to understand this teaching, this principle. It's really what the rest of the book of Romans is going to be built on. That's why Paul has been spending these three chapters. He's building his case, his argument. And now he's reached this conclusion. And we've got to come to that point where we stand before a holy God with our mouths stopped in recognition that we have sinned, in recognition of our hopeless condition. And with the understanding that unless there's some outside intervention, unless there's something or some person, something outside of ourselves that can infuse us with something that God would 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 grant us his grace, we are hopelessly, eternally damned. Every one of us need to come to that understanding. God does not waste Holy Scriptures playing with our minds. Oh, I'm pretty good. You're pretty good. We're all pretty good. God graves on the curve, right? Never. And we're all hopelessly in this world born, lost in sin and deserving of damnation. I told you this to be a warm fuzzy sermon, right? That's the statement from God. Someone once said, until sin is made bitter to us, God's grace will never be made sweet. And Paul is trying to make sin bitter to us. It's a reality. We've entitled this whole series on Romans with one word, rescued. (laughs) Rescued. Because, as we'll see next week, that's exactly what the heart of God has done for us. It's amazing how the world seems so occupied and fully focused on coronavirus, COVID-19. We're all in a, in a, in a lather about COVID-19, that little microscopic parasite. When all the world is infected by sin, that the cause of all the world's woes throughout all the history of time is if the virus of sin that has come into every person's life. And the one question that remains, I think, this morning for any one of us is Has our mouth been silenced? Has our mouth been stopped and silenced before God? Or do we hold on to something that that we can think that we can bring before God and say, see God, I mean, don't you see this? I mean, I've done this. Doesn't that count for something for eternity? Doesn't that give me some leg up with you? Has your mouth been silent before a holy God? Yehiel Denier was a a Jewish Holocaust survivor after World War II. He survived Auschwitz. He was sent to Auschwitz back in 1943 by none other than the the mastermind behind the, the final solution of the great purge in Nazi Germany, Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann personally sent De to Auschwitz. But De Nure survived Auschwitz, and so did Adolf Eichmann survive World War II. In fact, he hid himself away. Eichmann did. He escaped Germany, ended up in South America. And for 15 years, he lived incognito, put on a business suit, worked in a factory with his family. For 15 years, no one knew where he was until the Israeli Mossad found him, the Israeli police. And they captured him, Eichmann, and they brought him back to Jerusalem to stand trial for his crimes. And that's when Yahil Dinur for the first time in 18 years, came face to face with the man who put him in Auschwitz. For Denier was asked to be a, a, a witness at his trial. There sat Eichmann behind that plexiglass or that glass protective cage. And in walked Yehiel Denier and their eyes met. And the reports were that Denier suddenly, as they met, he broke down in uncontrollable sobs, weeping, screaming, and then fainted dead away and had to be carried out. In years later, um, Mike Wallace was interviewing Denier on the program 60 Minutes. And he asked him, uh, that, that day in that court, that trial of Eichmann, what happened to you? I mean, when, when you... Fell apart when you literally screamed and, and fainted. Was the horror of Auschwitz flooding your mind? Did, did you remember all the, the pain, all the evil that, that was there? Did, you, did that all come to you and the horror of it all, and you just couldn't handle it? Denier shook his head and he said, No, none of that. None of that. I was afraid of myself. I saw I had the capability of doing the same. This was not some godlike authority in a uniform who sentenced me to Auschwitz. No Eichmann was an ordinary man sitting there in a business suit and suddenly Denier wrote or said I realized I was just like him. Eichmann was in me. And Eichmann is in you and every person who's been born in this world. About 100 years ago, one of the newspapers in London put a, uh, an ad-like statement in the paper. It was a question they wanted people to respond to. The question was, what's wrong with the world? People wrote in their comments some essays, long comments, and and then G.K. Chesterton, a famous Christian apologist, wrote his little piece in. Dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? He wrote two words. I am G.K. Chesterton. The purpose of this message this morning, as I hope every message is, is to teach God's Word. And sometimes we teach God's Word and it doesn't give us warm fuzzies. I don't care. Because we need to be brought face to face with the reality of God's estimation of man. And everyone born in this world is under sin and deserving of eternal damnation. But there is always good news with God. And next week, we'll find out about it. Didn't I say that last week? You see, God in his... Absolutely incomprehensible love and grace understood our condition. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he did something about it. And the amazing plan of the heart of God, he sent his son into the world. He who knew no sin, perfectly righteous, came to this earth, and he took our wretchedness and our depravity and our corruption and our sin, and he took it upon himself. And he died in our place. He paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. He shed his blood. He broke his body. That's what we celebrated today. What we celebrated was a reminder That in his infinite love and grace, God sent his son who exchanged his righteousness that we did not have nor could ever have for our sinfulness that he never had. He took our sin and gave us the free gift of his righteousness to everyone who simply believes the free gift of eternal life is in Jesus. By simple faith, this grand transaction is made. And we who are unrighteous on simple faith of receiving that free gift get the righteousness of Jesus and the free gift of eternal life. All eternity is settled. What an amazing God that could condemn us in one moment charge us with every mouth being stopped accountable before a holy God measured against his standard as hopelessly depraved and then offer the free gift of eternal life have you received that free gift of eternal life I don't want anyone leaving here today without hearing this. God so loved you. He gave his son. He died for your sins, paid for them in full, and now is offering you a free gift. And if you leave here today still thinking that you, in your own goodness and righteousness, can earn a spot with him in heaven, there is no hope for you on this earth. Receive the free gift of eternal life. It's the best deal you ever hear. The entirety of your life, of your eternity. Believe that Jesus Christ died for you and paid for your sins. And in that moment of faith, do you believe it to be true? You say, yes, God, I do. I'm gonna receive that. Thank you. I believe that. I believe he did that for me. He died. He paid for my sins. He rose again. Yes, I believe that to be true. In the moment of faith, it becomes your. The free gift is yours of eternal life. I hope we leave here today with a sober reminder. We're walking out into a world that is infected with the deadly virus of sin. People need to know Jesus. He's the rescuer who's come to save. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I thank you for um, moving upon this Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to write down inspired, inerrant words, truthful words, that are not necessarily delightful to listen to. But they're true. I pray, Father, that um, because we've been here today, because we have been before the Lord's table, we've been reminded of what you have done for us and your son Jesus, that we will leave here today with with great, um, deep, deep, thankfulness in our heart that we can say, father once I was lost but you found me once I was spiritually blind but you caused me to see once I was hopeless depraved corrupted under the enslavement of sin but you've set me free Because of Jesus. And then, Father, may we seriously consider to live a life that honors you, our Lord, our Savior, our Rescuer, our Master. I pray this, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.